is Yasser Luati coming to you straight from the Paris Southside Banlieue. One more episode of this time dealing with the upheavals hitting France after the racist murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Today, I'm honored to receive one of our finest scholars on racial issues in France. This is Dr. I should say, Maboula Soumaros. She was born just like me and raised in France, graduated from the University of Colombia and the University of Tours, which is about 150 miles west of Paris. She got her PhD on a quite interesting uh, subject, the, the color of God, crossed views on the nation of Islam and Rastafarism between 1930 and 1950, following her PhD. She came back to France to teach English literature at the University of Tours, and she is notorious in France for her public commitment to racial justice in France, in a country that defines herself as a colorblind and the cradle of human rights, even though a reality oftentimes contradicts whatever has been written in the French constitution. Dr. Soumaro, welcome to Le Breakdown. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Yasser. So, Maboula, I would like to start off with, uh, you've been following what's happening in the U.S. and in France. Uh, you know, you, you're quite familiar with what has been experienced by minorities in France, namely African diasporas from Tunisia down to uh, South Africa. Uh, to make it simple, what's your analysis of the current events in France? I'm talking about uh, the question of racism that, that became a central issue in the public debate, but also how what happened in the U.S. affected what's going on in France today. I think we could uh, begin by saying that there's a long tradition from France, from hexagonal France, a long tradition of looking at things that are American, right? The United States of America is oftentimes on the, 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 the French national psyche. We know what's going on there. We follow you know, the elections and we follow the news. And that has to do with the power, the cultural, political, economic Uh, power held by the United States of America, right? It's not only France. So France sometimes can appear as very familiar, very interested in things that um, are of concern only in the United States, actually. Um, and one of the, I don't know, one of the main interests held by France over the United States of America is the question of racism and the question of African-Americans, particularly the, the question of African-American culture. The French have a passion for jazz music, for instance. Uh, today, hip hop is, is, is a global culture to begin with. But there's also this, let's say, old tradition of France welcoming intellectuals, artists, athletes, soldiers, coming from the United States of America. That began in the late 19th century, but that became more pivotal with the two world wars. So in that regard, uh, France is, tries to pride herself as being non-racist on the basis of having this tradition of welcoming African-Americans. One of the most famous uh, examples is um, Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker was a superstar in, in France in the, you know, in the in between, um, between the two world wars. Uh, she was also active in the French resistance. She received, uh, you know, she was recognized by the French Republic because of her actions led during uh, the second world war. Uh, yes, and she was a famous singer and actress. So Josephine Baker, uh, Richard Wright, um, James Baldwin, um, so many others, right? And so, The, Angela uh, Davis, Angela Davis, Angela Davis, who did study in France, but uh, and who also, um, uh, when she was arrested or when she was uh, facing courts um, in the United States of America, there were large demonstrations, large demonstrations held to uh, you know defend her. But there were uh, demonstrations held in other European countries too. Anyway, so because France has welcomed all the people that I've mentioned particularly in the time of the U.S. segregation, France tries to believe that it is not a racist country. So I'm, so I'm trying to be as simple as possible. We could get into the details, but this is the basic uh, thing that one needs to understand. What France lacks uh, or fails to understand is that, that at the same time that, that the country was welcoming those African-Americans, 
that truly need to, under, to be understood as black people, yes, but black civilized people, black American people. That is to say that in that particular instance, race is to be combined with nationality. Those people who came from abroad came from the powerful, from the mighty United States of America. So they were, some, they were black people of another kind. And at the same time, France was an, an imperial power. It was a colonial power. And, and France was dealing with, let's say, black or non-white populations all over the world and also within her hexagonal um, borders. And the treatment of those populations of color was very different, very different from the way the country treated African-Americans. Right? So if we keep that in mind, and if we, be, if we follow you know, the current news and all the, you know, the um, police brutality cases, the latest one being George Floyd and the you know, horrendous images, the footage that we've had um, access to, um, France did a lot of media coverage about George Floyd. And this media coverage that is very common um, was capitalized by some uh, organizations that were already fighting, that had been fighting against police brutality in France. And for the first time, it became feasible for French voices of color to tell France uh, or to trick or to trap France and say, look, you're looking at America, but look at what is going on right now, right? Look at what is going on for French citizens of color. Right, so the, strat the strategy worked in that case. It mm -hmm. was not the first attempt, but because the, the you know because of the international context and the pandemic and all these things, the focus on George Floyd was so great that it became impossible for 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 friends to escape this question, the national question of police brutality and racism within hexagonal France. But this brings a question, uh, Doctor Somaro, that. If I were American coming from, let's say, the Midwest, and I hear about this, in the common Western imaginary, France has this reputation of being the cradle of human rights, mm -hmm. the country for the city of light, the city of you know great cheese, great wine, and romanticism, etc. But I would ask the question: What is the matter between France and her minorities? And this is a question I I get asked all the time by U.S.-based journalists because to them there is a cognitive dissonance between what they think France is and what the news sometimes report on racism yes. in France and particularly you know, state brutality against you know, minorities in the so-called banlieue. Mm. Because I think you're right to insist on the portrayal of herself that France has shaped and has, let's say, circulated abroad, right? So, from abroad, you can view France as the, you know, the, the, the country that you have described, uh, you know, fashion and, 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 and rights and, and human rights, uh, the French Revolution and um, colorblindness, right? This is also what is upheld within France herself, right? These principles that there is no ethnic or racial distinction to be made within the French borders. The only dichotomy that can exist within France is the dichotomy between foreigners and nationals. You're either French or a foreigner. As long as you're French, it doesn't matter your religion, your race, your, you know, any type of identity is not to be taken into account by the institutions. That's the theory. And that's a beautiful theory uh, that I'm all in favor of, but we've never seen the practice. France has upheld those ideals, but France was an imperial or is an imperial power and has been a colonial power. And this has had, just like other countries, France is not the, the, the only one, this has had all types of implications, um, including racial implications. This is, this is the characteristic, the common characteristic of all colonial projects of what we call the modern area, right? the great discoveries, the new world, right? Um, the arrival of Europeans in the Americas, the first encounters with the African continent, the, the, the encounter with the Asian continent. This is when race as anchored in 
bodies, right? To, let's say, decide on um, social, political, economic hierarchy that is to be visible on people's bodies. This is the novelty in human history, right? To see uh, in simplistic terms, to see people in terms of black and white is a novelty in human history. It can be dated to a particular period. Before that period, human beings had other ways of defining themselves. It could be birthplace, it could be religion, it could be social status, it could be a lot of other things, even diet a, a long time ago. Now that we have entered this modern era, this modern era has invented those racial categories to be read, to be anchored in the bodies. And France, just like the United States, just like Britain, just like Spain or Portugal and other Western countries has participated in these colonial um, projects. And those colonial projects have enforced those racial categories. So France can think of herself the way she wants. Uh, she, she has participated in different manners, but she has participated in the, um, uh, in the racialization of, of, of populations. So, so how we're was, dealing with the denial, but that's all. But how, was, how, how has this racialization been expressed if in the official documents there is no skin color, there is no religion, there is no community or the national community? In the, Yes, in the more recent documents, I'm talking about the Fifth Republic, which is the institution that is, uh, you know, like ruling the country right now. This is the Fifth Republic. France has not always been a republic. France used to be a monarchy, right? Uh, France, France was also an empire under Napoleon. So if you look at French history, uh, there have been times when race was really uh, taken into account and managed by the institutions. If you look at the, the times when slavery was legal, slavery and the slave trade, the legal document that was managing the slave populations in the overseas departments, right, in the overseas territories, which is the main difference between France and the US, the slave population in France was established outside of hexagonal France, outside of Europe, right? We're talking about Reunion Island, Martinique, Guadeloupe, Guyana, you know, just to name a few. Right? So these territories outside of Europe, outside of hexagonal France, were um, managed by law. And this law was called the, 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 the Black Code. It was called the Black Code, not, not, not anything else. And for black populations that would access or that would enter hexagonal France, um, in 1777, for instance, a particular department of the police department. A, a, a particular unit of the police department was created and it was called uh, the, the, the police of the blacks, la police des noirs, the police of the blacks, right? So these are two examples, but if you talk about the larger colonial uh, history, within the colonial system, you had all types of uh, terms used to de designate the colonial subjects. Muslim was one, one term, right? Native was another term. Um, I mean, th th these are all the, um, you know, the, the terms that point to the recognition of race by the French bureaucracy. So this thing about, um, you know, we don't recognize race is a recent, recent thing in the French bureaucracy. This is the Fifth Republic. Under colonialism, right? France was managing those racial categories.
this uh, reminds me of um, another uh, sociologist, Nassir Agenif, from the University mm -hmm. of uh, Paris uh, 8th in, mm -hmm. in, in, in Saint-Denis. Uh, I think one of her books, uh, The French Republic made La France mise à nu par son immigration, France having been made naked by her immigration. Mm. And she speaks of how there was, after colonization, a, um, a programmed amnesia or a voluntary amnesia as if decolonization happened, took place, and then that's it, we moved on to a new system as mm -hmm. if, and I'm, this time I'm quoting you, as if all the racism that was being carried and adhered to by individuals did not transpire into the institutions and the way policy, uh, policies were being implemented. So mm -hmm. now my question is, how is today this racialization of individuals made, I want, I'm gonna say maybe a, a dirty word, made legal, which means I can speak for a set of laws targeting Muslim women, but mm -hmm. you see that the relationship between France and her minorities are all but based on racial domination. I mean, it's no uh, coincidence that Blacks and Arabs constitute, you know, the bulk majority of Blacks and Arabs do live in precarious economic conditions, that they are politically absent, uh, that police brutality targets them first. And this yeah. is what I said in my previous episode, that when I'm asked about the Yellow Vest movement, this is me speaking again, no, this is my personal opinion, that it is difficult to have sympathy to a movement like the Yellow Vest movement because their demands are legit, but they remained quiet for 40 years while the police was be beating down blacks and Arabs. And once this violence left the banlieue and started targeting white boys during the uh, labor reform, Loi Travail and the Paris Occupy movement in 2016, and now the Yellow Vest movement, oh, police brutality is a problem. So mm. there is this kind, this either you are invisible, mm. but at the same time when we deal with you, it is based on a racial relationship. Could you explain to an English-speaking audience in the US or, or, or the UK or Australia, how is this made kind of acceptable? And anytime you put this on, on into question, oh, come on, the, 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 we are colorblind. This, you know, what you're talking because about this is, is paranoia. This is a divide between centers and peripheries, right? So what exists in, what exists in the centers is, let's say, the norm, what is, uh, legit, what is unquestionable, and what is theoretical, you know, the values, the ideals, the, 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 the beauty, and the, you know, rights for everyone, equality, liberty, justice, and right. And, but outside of the center always lie peripheries. And this is when, I mean, this is systematically where you're supposed to look at if you want to understand how France operates. The first dichotomy between center and periphery is the, the colonial project. Hexagonal France, overseas departments, overseas territories, right? Some of those overseas territories that used to be colonies, some have become independent, some have remained within the French Republic, right? And if you look at the history of violence ha, um, as, it, um, as it unfolded, in those territories in those times, this could be a reminder of the history of violence that can be found between, let's say, large cities of hexagonal France and all the banlieues, all the peripheries of, of, of hexagonal France. Be precisely because in all those peripheries, you will find systematically a larger a greater number of, let's say, post-colonial immigrants. This is where the continuity lies, even though uh, a larger number of people is now being born within hexagonal France, but they come from those, let's say, highly racialized, negatively racialized territories. So to me, if you, if you play with this center and periphery within hexagonal France, but also outside of hexagonal France, you start uh, understanding things better, and your and your example of um, the yellow vest and the cases, the case of police uh, police brutality, police brutality became more visible because it took place uh, at the center in Paris, right? And you're right to say that people who had mobilized and fought against police brutality 
in the banlieue uh, said this has been uh, this has been happening to us for a long time, right? But this has been uh, happening to us outside of the center, outside of the media um, media coverage. Just like people from the overseas uh, territories can say, look at what happened in Guadeloupe in '67 and how this mobilization was violently, uh, uh, you know, uh, crushed by the French uh, authority, yeah. right? About, in a manner about 100 people have, died. Yeah. Exactly, right? And it took how, almost 50 years for people to, um, to, to get uh, a national uh, commission that would investigate those uh, events of 1967. If you speak to the common French person, the average French person within hexagonal France, and you tell them, uh, yes, um, do you know anything about, about May 67? And they would say, no, you're talking about May 68. Exactly. May 68 within hexagonal France, right? Thinking that everything took place in Paris, even when in Paris, I mean, outside of Paris, in Nantes, in Bordeaux, in Marseille, there were things happening in May 68, right? But the focus is uh, already Paris. So if the focus within hexagonal France is Paris, can you imagine what we don't know about what happened outside of hexagonal France, right? So I think that, yeah, centers and periphery, what is visible, what is uh, positive, uh, what is even desirable is within the center. Peripheries, it's like anything can happen. You're free to do whatever you want. You rightly mentioned in May 67, and I like the way um, in, in the West Indies they, they, they write it differently with the M and the E yes. with an accent, in, and in not M-A-I, they write it in, in Creole. And that event, I heard about it from a friend of mine from Martinique, and we were, mm -hmm. talk, we were talking about police brutality in our, he, mm -hmm. he, he grew up in the, in the French Antilles, in the French, in French West Indies, and his experiences, I was talking about mine, in the south mm -hmm. side of Paris. And uh, this made me think, because the debate of the police today, especially with the mobilizations of last week and the upcoming ones, regardless of the attempts of uh, state-sponsored anti-racist organizations, if they are really trying to kind of get a hold and control the narrative on uh, anti-racism struggle and against police brutality, uh, I tend to look at it more like you know in a radical way. Radical, not in the in the meaning of uh, extremist, but to the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. Many many uh, ignore or do not know, as a matter of fact, about the French police is that the modern day police was born in August 1941. Mm -hmm. 1941, that's the Vichy era, you know, mm -hmm. under uh, Maréchal Pétain, who shook Hitler's hand and implemented the anti-Semitic policies leading to the deportation of thousands of Jews. Now, if we look at it, and I'm quoting Ray Anderson on his book, uh, The Civil War in France and How the Fifth Republic Was Born, is that we never celebrate the birth of the Fifth Republic because we know it was born out of a sin. And that sin was a silent coup in favor of the General de Gaulle. Now that applies also to the French police. We never celebrate the birth of the French police. As a matter of fact, maybe you as a historian, or, or sorry, as a researcher, you can help me on this. I couldn't get my hands on the decree signed by Maréchal Pétain, mm. uh, creating the national police. You can't find it. You see people, who copied the content, but the original document, to me, is nowhere to be found. Now, if you have a police force born in the Vichy era, 1941, mm -hmm. and whose first accomplishments, if I can say, were uh, deporting, I mean, rounding up Jews out of their homes under René Bousquet. The next accomplishment, uh, May 61, uh, sorry, October, uh, 17th of October, 1961, and the killing of 200 to 300 Algerians in downtown Paris, not in Algeria, in downtown Paris. You add to it May 67, but the narrative that we spoke of is when we mention the, pol the French police in the 1960s, they can only mention May 68. Now, my question to you, uh, Mabula, is that how do you explain that regardless of the brutality of the police and its birth in the midst of a fascist, under a fascist government mm. that, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm pushing it, 
which I tend to do quite often. Uh, how is it that the majority group still identified with the police and many of them still do for a person like me who fought this state of emergency and who saw what the police was capable of in terms of uh, ransacking places of worship, humiliating families, I mean, I saw families being destroyed because the husband has been put on house arrest, the wife was humiliated, just, you know, dragged from her bed in her underwear, the kids screaming because they're terrified. Yet, polls show that the majority population or the majority of the French still supported the police and identified with it. People I have my answer, see. but I, I want to I hear yours. Okay. So first you taught me a few things because I'm not a, I was trained in you know American history and not French history. So I was not familiar with the birth of the um, the birth of the police in 1941 but what it reminded me of what I what I'm aware of is that um, the French struggle with the Vichy regime. Historically they don't know what to do. The Vichy regime is not part of the history of the republic. It's something else. Even in law, even in law, the, you, you go, let's say, straight from the, 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 the Third uh, Republic to the Fourth and then the Fifth. And there's a blank. And that blank is the Vichy regime. So even the French themselves, they don't know how, how to deal with Vichy. Vichy that had institutional and very concrete, um, you know, like um, implications. Legacy. Legacy. Yes, and, yeah. and, and, and legacy. But they're, they're, you know, it's, it's a little bit like the, um, the abolition of slavery. The abolition of slavery, um, the example might be far-fetched at first, but you, you, I'm sure you're aware that France is the only country to have abolished slavery twice. The first time in 1794, and then it was reestablished by Napoleon in 1802, and then it was abolished a second time in 1848. So what I'm trying to insist upon here are the ambiguities the ambivalence, you know, we abolish it, but then we reestablish it and then we re-abolish it. So the, the thing with the uh, Vichy regime is that it's, it's like a, a stain. It's like a stain in, in French history and, and in, in the way the French like to imagine themselves. Was, you know, people will argue, you know, Vichy was made illegal anyway. Like Vichy does not matter, but Vichy existed. And what happened within those years? And laws that were passed, and 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 policies that were launched, and actions that were that were taken at the time, right? So we we, we are ambiguous. We we are very ambivalent about, about that that particular period. But but it's really interesting to trace uh, the roots of the French police to those particularly violent times. But this violence again that was unfolding within hexagonal France and the rest of Europe. Some will argue that, um, of course, uh, the Holocaust took place. Roma populations were also exterminated during the Second World War, right? Some, some historians have argued that um, when it comes to the Germans, they trained themselves to those genocides on the um, African continent, right? Or that in terms of violence, and, and the exercise of violence, look at what happened in you know, the Americas and look at what happened to the native populations of the Americas. Look at what happened during the, uh, the transatlantic slave trade and other uh, trades. So it's, it's interesting again to see the, um, hmm, when, when you mentioned Nasira Genif earlier, the way amnesia is organized, right? Uh, is organized and passed down. So I think that if you were to um, do a survey today, I don't think people would be aware, and, but I don't even think that they would be interested in the very roots of the creation of the police, right? Are they, are they prepared? Are they willing? Would they accept to hear that, those problematic roots of, um, of the French police? And I think that um, what the country rests upon is this, uh, you know, this need for, and this belief held by perhaps a majority of citizens that a police is necessary and that the police is the, um, has the power, the legitimate power to use force and to exercise violence when it, uh, it deems um, necessary to use violence. 
hence the next question, when is violence necessary? I believe violence is necessary against the poor, against the marginalized, against the, the, the negatively racialized. This, this is when violence is acceptable. And all those categories, poor, marginalized, um, and, 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 and negatively you know, racialized populations are always the same. They're always the same. And they would be more likely to come from the former, former colonial and current uh, empire. You're actually uh, giving a turn to this conversation to something I had not planned, but I'm, I'm grateful for it. Sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. Actually, it's a good thing. Uh, you speak about this legitimate use of violence and you accept it when it targets the, you know, the poor, the outcast, yes. the negatively, negatively racialized communities. And we saw it firsthand in 2015, 2016, during the state of emergency when it was proclaimed mm -hmm. following the horrendous terrorist attacks of November 2015. Mm -hmm. And we saw that the first targets were Muslims. I mean, yes. speaking with the victims, I mean, like I spoke with like many of them and even of dear friends of mine were lost their job because they, they, they went through a yes. purge, you know, in, in the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the airports. Many mm -hmm. Muslims, blacks, everyone get out. And mm -hmm. they were even investigating in their private lives whether he goes to the mosque or not, whether his wife wears a headscarf or not. And this is, I mean, like I've seen people destroyed in their private lives. I mean, the people, they were like, I don't even pray at work. How in the world they went and, you know, in the investigation or who I speak to it. So we saw that violence in Muslim homes, Muslim places of worship, Muslim businesses in the overwhelming majority. And I remember, and you don't have to agree with me, and this is from my personal experience, is that during two and a half weeks, as that violence went unchecked against, you know, people in the, you know, banlieue, you know, Montfermeil, Montreuil, Vitry, uh, name them, and, they, and you had someone, Aubervilliers Mosque, and there was no one to come and say, what's going on? And I even spoke to, now I can name them, journalists from L'Obs, uh, mm -hmm. the, the weekly uh, a magazine, and I asked her, I'm like, you know, when are you guys going to start talking about what's happening? And she admits off the record, we have been asked to never criticize the state of emergency. So for her to speak about it was to come to us and get testimonies from victims and let the reader make their opinion. Now, what I told the left is that you remained silent for two and a half weeks when the police and gendarmerie were beating down blacks and Arabs. 
Mm -hmm. Once that violence targeted the COP21, the environmental summit that took place in Paris, now the state of emergency became a problem. And I remember even Amy Goodman from Democracy Now, you know, we, we met and you know we spoke in off, you know, after the interview, and she smelled like tear gas. Well, like Amy, I'm, you know, I think you I think you stink tear gas. <laughs> Maybe you need to change your clothes. And she was like, Yeah, I went to the COP21, we we got tear gas, etc. And mm -hmm. we spoke about that. Now, mm -hmm. don't you think there is also a problem? I mean, it's one thing to speak about France in the macro in macro terms, but mm -hmm. if even within the so-called radical French left or the French mm -hmm. radical left, mm -hmm. people who are active at the grassroots level dealing with police brutality, that they remained silent when that state of violence was unleashed on Muslim minorities. I mean, how do you, do, do you view it as a researcher, especially given your background in studying what's happening across the Atlantic in the US? Because they, people don't make the connections and because that's the very, you know, that's the very function um, of racism. That's the way how it operates. That's the way it operates. The construction of categories, whatever categories, it's, it has nothing to do with rationality. Those categories, that are created serve a purpose, serve a purpose. So you can look at the population of Muslim, uh, Muslims, let's say in French society, and you can, um, let's say, bestow any type of characteristics on uh, these Muslim community based on the, um, the context of the moment. So post 2015 or 2015, France, uh, experiences herself as under attack, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a security issue and national security being at stake uh, because of the state of, uh, of emergency and extended powers, we have now constructed this category, this hateful, this threatening category that, um, that now we have the power and we are justified of using violence against them. You, you know what I mean? They are dangerous. Just yeah, like, think of the Patriot Acts post 2001 in the United States, 9-11 and the Patriot Acts. What is it? We've been under attack. So now we have the right to limit basic civil liberties of Americans and foreigners because who's gonna, who is going to say anything after 3,000 people died on US soil? Yes, but what does it say about the so-called you know, French left when they themselves, you know, voluntarily or not, and again, we can debate whether all white people are racist or not, and yeah. I, saw, I, saw, I saw a piece called, uh, yes, I said it, all white people are racist. You know, that's, you know, a piece you know, maybe, maybe people would like to read on a medium, but I'm not, again, I'm talking about people who are supposed to be at the vanguard of no, that's the theory. They're not. They, it's it's not their community. The targeted, the stigmatized community has to be targeted and stigmatized for a reason. This is what you convince yourself of. What you fail to understand when you when you justify, when you're willing to justify everything for your own, you know, emotional stability or even for your own security, is that those constructions never make sense. And at some point, they will target you. This is exactly what Franz Fanon says uh, in, in one of the uh, appendices to um, the Richard of the Earth. When he talks about, um, you know, like the events in uh, Algeria, the war um, uh, taking place there. And he was working uh, originally was a psychiatrist for the French army. And he was receiving patients and he, you know, in great details, talks about this case. When somebody, a soldier, I don't know how rank this person was in the French army, comes to him and says, uh, you know, doctor, I don't know what's going on. Um, I smoke more. Uh, I argue with my wife. I beat my wife. I beat my kids. I always feel tense and nervous. And, and he comes to see the doctor for that. And, and, and as a psychiatrist, um, Fanon writes, doesn't tell him, and say, what do you think? Do you think that you're going to be part of the army, fundamentally vi a violent institution, 
that you are going to exercise violence against Algerian bodies, that you are going to torture people all day, and that this violence you're going to be able to contain. From nine to five, you're going to be in the most extreme forms of violence. And then after five, you're gonna go home and, 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 and enjoy your family, your wife and kids. This is not how it works. The thing that you will accept that is inherently violent, inherently wrong, right? If you're able to justify it because it's not targeting you, it will come back to you some way or the other at some point. And this is when it will become um, you know, uh, scandalous for you and unacceptable. But you did find it acceptable when it was targeting other because you were made to believe that those actions taken against this particular community, however it was defined, Muslim, black, Roma, whatever, uh, you know, homosexual, whatever, this targeted community, this, the, the construction of this category, this racist construction is never rational. It never makes sense. It serves a purpose. It serves a purpose. And I mean, like you, you're, I'm really glad that you brought, you know, France Fanon that we tend to kind of uh, uh, quote without really understanding the depth of his, yes. uh, I mean, like we are, the, we are the generation that we see all these, like you know, you know, quotes and memes and yeah, like, you know, catchphrases. And yeah, so so, so and, and that's true that the violence we, you 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 are playing as others, you are actually also victim of it because you're gonna pay for it in a different way. Now, but this yeah. raises the question, uh, uh, Mabula, on the existence. I mean, like if violence is applied against non-white bodies, whether mm. in the in the center or the periphery, and this raises the question of the narrative. And mm -hmm. in terms of you, you, you've been studying, you know, U.S. history for quite some time. You graduated um, uh, on, on, on that topic. Uh, the one difference we can notice, especially for me, who, who spent, you know, still spends quite, you know, a lot of time in the U.S., is that you see that the black radical tradition managed to uh, become an institution, even without walls, that the narrative have been, has been taken by African Americans themselves. Mm -hmm. that you also have a black history being taught by uh, African-Americans, seen mm -hmm. and as lived by African-Americans themselves. Uh, you see the same thing. Uh, there is a book called um, The Battle of East Gable, when uh, Jewish communities in the, in the UK fought against fascist uh, militias. And the author speaks of you know, how you know, Irish people and the Jews you know, uh, converged and fought together against the fascists. But in the introduction, he speaks of how Jews were able to transmit, uh, um, uh, uh, did a work on memory and collective mm -hmm. memory, so their history is not forgotten, and kids know where they come from. Mm -hmm. Now, the discussion I've been having for quite some time, and now I'm going to speak as the head of the, the Justice and Liberties for our committee, the CJL that I had, is that, a fundamental, a fundamental flaw we identified is that the history of minorities is still to a great proportion or in the majority still told by white intellectuals, mm -hmm. whether they do it on purpose or not. Mm. And the histories of struggles carried by the post-colonial immigration is all over the place. And only today we are starting to see books being written on the, 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 the struggles against colonization, but then the, uh, the le their legacy, which means union leaders, anti-racist leaders, and from my generation who grew up in the 90s, you know, the people who fought like uh, the MIB, Mouvement des Migrations de Banlieues, and don't you think there is a huge, uh, uh, let's say, gap, if not a black hole in the, uh, in the physical term, in terms of the collective memory of the African diaspora in France? Or do you think it's, it's there, but not sufficiently publish, uh, publicized? I think it's there, but it's not uh, sufficiently publicized. It's not sufficiently publicized because it's not underpinned by institutions. It's not systematic. It would be family by family, organization by organization, if we are lucky to, to begin with. Or it would be simply colonized. You know, somebody from outside coming and, and, and um, doing some work or not, and then publishing something. It, it's something that is not valued. In the case of, of, of the United States, I, th I think we can be more nuanced, right? 
the reason why you're talking about this, this you know, tradition, right? This, this legacy being passed down is precisely because of institutions. Let's say black history, African-American history was not always taught in schools. Black professors, black scholars, black historians, or you know, uh, people special, specializing in, in, in culture did not always hold positions in, let's say, education and higher education. Think of um, the case of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Very respected, fundamental, one of the pillars of the uh, African-American intellectual and political tradition. What, what, what Du Bois needs to do first is to get a PhD. You need to have an African-American get a PhD. Not only a PhD, but a PhD from the Ivy League, a PhD from Harvard University. Uh, University. So Du Bois is the first African-American to receive a PhD from Harvard University, the oldest and most prestigious uh, university in the United States of America, okay? After that, I mean, doing that, he's doing a PhD in sociology. And in sociology, he studies African-Americans. Why does he study African-Americans? Because African-Americans were not studied. They were not part of the tradition of sociology. Or if they were, they were misstudied by white Americans. Why were they misstudied? Because it was a population that did not matter. That did not matter because they were mostly, not all of them, mostly descendants of slaves. So you cannot matter any more less than if you're a slave, right? Your, your, your belonging to a community is a reflection of the socio and even racial economic order of the society you find yourself in. So you need this PhD from Harvard. You need somebody to write a PhD on African-Americans to establish African-Americans as um, an object of academic study worthy of attention. Right? This is what he does. And if he gets the PhD and if he, he, he fights and wins to have his topic accepted, he does, he, 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 let's say he fights this first battle and then he publishes on the topic. Right? So you need to find a publisher or you need to found a, a publishing house. And you need a second PhD in history. And that's Carter G. Woodson. And what will Carter G. Woodson do is get his PhD but also establish academic journals, academic journals that will become outlets for unprofessional, because unpaid, but still doing the work, African-American historians who will never find other academic journals that will publish their findings because nobody cares, right? So he publishes two, um, I mean, uh, uh, Carter G. Woodson publishes two uh, journals that allow, that enable African-American scholars, independent scholars, to disseminate their findings and to, let's say, exercise their profession of historians, right? So that's another type of institution. Those people, I mean, those and others, uh, Du Bois and, um, and Woodson, find positions, paid positions in universities and they can carry out their, their work. I'm not saying it's easy, but th that's what they do. And then later on, I mean, you have what's hap happening in um, historically black colleges and universities, right? Within which African-American history and cultures have not always been taught. This is something that people forget. Sometimes it was not the focus, but, but uh, gradually with the passing of time, people have fought to gain um, let's say the academic control of those institutions, right? And in other universities, non-historically black colleges and universities, during the civil rights movement, students mobilized and occupied campuses to demand, to demand that African-Americans, um, I mean, African-American history and cultures uh, be taught and black professors appointed Something for women, something, uh, something for Native Americans, something for, you know, Chicano. It was Chicano studies uh, first. You know what I mean? So yeah. the, 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 what I was trying to insist upon is that why is this history, why is this uh, legacy passed down? It is because of the institutions. It is because of the institutions. But the, but and the, the, the African-American church is the first institution. Yes, uh, actually what I was referring to was uh, that history was passed down first outside of the institutions before making their way in. Not, 
you know, that's what I had meant when I said that the collective memory is passed on, all right? And then the most, you know, the, the most skilled, the most brilliant ones, WB, uh, WEB. But the community voice. exists, yes, sir. The community exists mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. France, the, the, and hexagonal France in particular. Uh, we, we can still struggle with that notion of community. What is the community? I think the community is in the making. Right now, there are still, you know, strong affiliations with specific origins, right? Before saying you're Arab, some might say, you know, I'm from Tunisia. This is not Algeria. This is not Morocco. You, you know what I mean? Do we have a pan-Arab uh, identity that is really not only um, mentioned, but that is practiced? That, that, you, you, you know what I mean? Or yeah. are we still caught in the, um, you know, like um, I'm, I'm Senegalese and I'm Ivorian or... Am I black? Am I non-white? We're, we're, still, we're still struggling with that. We're I mean, part, of, part of, that, of that problem, especially within the Muslim, the African Muslim diaspora, mm. uh, sub-Saharan all the way up to the north, uh, even among converts, uh, whether they are white, uh, they are African or white, mm. is that for some time, let's say from the late, let's say the, the uh, late 1980s until you know to this day. There was this uh, Islamic horizon that tended to kind of erase differences based on the notion that believers are equal to one another and that there is no racism in Islam. Mm -hmm. And what played into it is that great figures of Islam were non-Arab. Non and mm -hmm. if you look through history, yes, Islam emerged in the Arabic Peninsula, but mm -hmm. then you know you had the greatest scholars were in Persia and then in the Ottoman Empire, etc. The problem with that is that this erasure of, you know, racial, I mean, even though in the Islamic context it's quite dif difficult to express it, but these differences, whether they were based on an ethnic background or a nationalist background, we are all Muslims and part of the community. Mm. The problem as, and we are going back now to how the fr France identified herself, is that this Islamic yes, identity- because what you described sounds very French. Yes, but uh, I'm, and, and, and I'm talking exactly about the very notion that, and honestly, I, I went through it in the U.S. as well. I mean, like, it's not, you know, in Arabic, it's called al-bu'd al-islami, you know, the, Isla the Islamic horizon that we are all, we are all Muslims mm -hmm. and there's no difference. Now, the problem was that, yes, there was the official discourse about Muslims being equal to one another. Mm. Yeah, but... And the practice... Thank you very much, because I spoke to various uh, clerics on this racial question, and I said, there is a nuclear uh, schism or uh, a nuclear rift along the racial lines within Muslim communities. Mm. The taboo of the slave trade, the taboo of racism between Muslims, Blacks and Arabs, mm. between Arabs, between North Africans, the Arabs and the Berbers and the Shawi, etc., and you are not addressing it. Mm. And now, as you mentioned it, like just a, a second ago, people now tend to fall back on the most secure identity they have. You know, mm. now it is one thing to kind of define the community, but right now the question that arises is uh, how are go how are you know. How is the African diaspora as a whole going to identify itself, regardless of differences? I mean, you know, it's you could still be up. I, mean, like I was raised, I was lucky enough to be raised in a Pan-Africanist family, so I'm kind of I feel safe on my side. But mm -hmm. I'm starting to worry today because these racial lines are, be, are becoming very, very sharp, very cutting, and they are not addressing them within religious communities. This, uh, then you read the question, how are people defining themselves? But don't you think it's going to become even more problematic today? Because the question of anti-black racism within Muslim communities right now in the US is raging. I was in Ferguson last year and the year before. And the people I'm like, I'm on the same line with them. And they are like, yes, sir, you have, um, we almost had a riot between black Muslims and Arab Muslims. Because uh, Arab store leaders, uh, have, you, know, are, you know, they have a store in a in a food desert, and they bring all this alcohol. The the the, the business becomes a crackpot, and and they don't want to hire from the community. They get the money, buy a nice place in white neighborhoods. 
And now it's, we are quite happy that the taboo is lifted with the unfortunate, you know, the George, we had to go through George Floyd to kind of bring this conversation. Now in France, we are starting to see this question arise, but not in the best conditions. Because for my generation, it did not, you know, it just, if you speak of uh, blacks versus Arabs, it doesn't, it like, it doesn't stick, like, you know, just like, like we grew up like it's like one part of the community, yes, but today we are seeing people identifying themselves as blacks, as Arabs, mm -hmm. in rejection mm -hmm. of the neighbor. Mm -hmm. So the. But, but, but I think that what you've raised is a very interesting point, but I think you've said it all. When you took the case of, uh, when you mentioned the case of what was going on, the community tensions in Ferguson, right? And the Arabs uh, being accused of, uh, let's say, exploiting the community and then not being part of the community and living somewhere else. What we're really, in all instances, what we're talking about is the competition for resources and scarce resources. That's always the same story. And the split that you are seeing and rightfully seeing in France right now between Blacks and Arabs, and in this case of, uh, you know, like the current um, case of police brutality, right? The Adama Traoré uh, committee, collective, is seen as a black collective. It is seen as a black collective. When we know, when people say, uh, you know, it is impossible to make the comparison between France and the United States, which I think is false, um, because both countries are dealing with the general question of racism, but of course there are national specificities. And one of those specificities in the French context is that at the hands of the police, uh, blacks and Arabs yeah, equal, die yeah, the same. Death, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? When in the United States, we know that statistically, African-Americans are particularly, they're not the only ones, they are particularly targeted by the, 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 the institution of the police. So one of our specificities within France is let's say, equal opportunity to die at the hand of the police or to be, uh, you know, hurt by the police at, at, at all types of level, right? Death is the extreme form of, of, of violence only. And if we fail to see that, to me, it, it only means that those racial divisions, they perform well as they were always, as they were designed originally um, to do, is to divide and rule. And people will fight, in this fight for justice, your community wants to get it first, which means that justice is the rare good. And we're fighting for the rare good. So the split will hurt all of us, but the split is logical. The split is, makes sense because every time there's a competition, every time there's rivalry is, because we are fighting for something that only, that we think only one of us will get. Only one of us. And that's, that's a shame. But I think that's people that even if they are unaware uh, of, of, of that fact, this is really what they are competing for. I know I'm taking much of your time and we are to make it shorter. Uh, I guess maybe you went through it yourself. When I was younger, oftentimes you would have a white person coming to the Arab telling him, oh, at least you're not black. And then he goes to the black person, says, oh, at least you're not Arab, okay? And within Arabs, oh, at least you're not Algerian. Yes. Oh, but that was so. Yes, yes, I mean, yes, like, yes. We have a responsibility yes. towards our own audiences and the people who look like us and sometimes listen to us. There will always be tensions between human beings on all, all sorts of reasons. Mm. When you see today that blacks and Arabs slash Muslims slash whatever are equal in the, you know, before police brutality, they are equal in the face of uh, systemic racism. And I'm talking about the African diaspora here in France. I'm not talking about the one in the US. Uh, the message you would send in terms of how solidarity networks can emerge, and if they are, have already emerged, be reinforced in anticipation of major problems arising from ever more scarce resources, ever more mm -hmm. crumbling institutions, and ever more tensions mm. at the national level. Because at the end of the day, blacks and Arabs are gonna pay the same price. 
even though they think they're gonna be better off. Yeah, you may die number nine, I'm dying number 10. What's the difference? You're gonna pay for it. What's your message? And I'm, right now I'm asking uh, the black woman, the black teacher, the French citizen, the descendant of the African diaspora, and a person who's been able to live on three continents and experience what it means to fight for justice and dignity as a human being. I'm asking for a lot and you'll have to forgive. That's a tough... <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a tough question. That's a tough question. All I could say, I think Yasser would be, I, I can only hope for people to be able to think, to think, just to think beyond the feelings, to think and to think through what is going on, what is going on. The immediate gains, the immediate gains, they're important. They are important because they are immediate. But on the long run, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. All those categories, to me, all those categories, we should understand that they serve a purpose and they don't, say, they don't serve our purposes. This is what we need to recognize. I can only have hope. There's nothing, this competition, and of course, silences need to be uh, broken and taboos. And uh, of course, the, you know, the history of racism uh, in the, uh, let's say, uh, Arab world and the, 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 the slave trade that took place there. So, of course, and the, uh, what it has produced, right? The form of racism that it has produced. It needs to be discussed openly so that we, we can move on. But we need to understand that despite that other history, we are now finding ourselves within hexagonal France, and we have much in common. We have much in common. Or we can have, or we can choose to recognize that we have much in common. Just like the example you gave, um, I remember um, you know, applying for, uh, for, to rent an apartment, right? And the, the woman thought on the phone, because of my last name, she thought I was Asian, Sumaro. And then she said, are you Asian? And I said, no. And she was like, what are you? And I, I said, I, I thought, no use, to, no use saying I'm French because that's not the point. I might as well tell her that I'm black because this is what, what it's about. So I said, yes, I'm Ivorian. And she was like, oh, 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 okay, 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 right? And when I met her in person, she said, I don't have anything against Africans. I just don't like Arabs. And I'm saying that to say that in my life, right? I'm talking about my life, not my, my, my work. I've never seen, I've seen white people who disliked both blacks and Arabs. I've seen um, white people hating Arabs and not black people, right? And like bearing with black people. But in all cases, they were racist. You know what I mean? All cases. So what I can benefit from is the fact that, oh my God, I'm not Arab and I'll get, I will get this apartment, right? But in most cases, neither you nor me will get the apartment. Somebody else will. Most commonly, most commonly. So we need to deal with that. We need to overcome that and we need to not be fooled with, again, the purpose that those categories serve. They have been constructed to establish hierarchies in our societies. And this is what we need to question at all times, even when they benefit us, precisely when they benefit us. That's all I can say. Dr. Sumauro, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and very stimulating. And I hope that the audience will think the same. I'm gonna be ambitious and ask you if you would come back again on the breakdown in English and Les Idées Libres in French to discuss more of these taboos. As usual, Yasser, we just need to find uh, the right time and day. And, yeah, but my name, I'm Yasser, you will find time. I <laughs> know, <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Sumao. Thank you, Yasser. For those who want to read your publications, you are um, all over the place on the internet. Uh, your thesis has been made available online, and I'm going to be the first one to read it because I had to prepare this show. Mm -hmm. Thanks again, Dr. Sumauro, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me.
As for you, dear audience, thank you for listening to us. This special edition of the breakdown is over. I say to you what I say to everybody on the same spot. Talk to you soon. See you later. <laughs>